Salve! Nomen meam iason, et fabula nostra grata est. Odie, disputabimus de doctor quis, nove de incendius Pompeii, a Iacobo Morano conscriptum. Caniuge me in colloquio tres amicissimi, sociae, queso, nomine tua diac. Uh, that means, guys, what are your names? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize we were doing it in Polari. I would have checked. Some, I would have brushed <laughs> up on it. <laughs> Since we are talking about a book set during the Roman Empire when the characters are speaking Latin, that was Latin via Google Translate. Saying, hi, and this is Jason. Welcome to the podcast. We're talking about James Moran, The Fires of Pompeii. I'm joined today by three friends. Fellas, please tell me your names. I'm Mark. I'm Pete. I'm Jim. And I am joined, as always, by Smudge, my podcat. So we have a pretty epic panel today to talk about the fires of Pompeii. This is the last of the year 2021 novelizations to be discussed on Trap One. The novelizations, because of the pandemic, ended up not getting released until 2022. So we've already discussed the two novelizations of David Fisher audiobooks, Androids of Tara and the Stones of Blood. And we've also talked about on this show The Eaters of Light. This is the last of the four books which came out last year. It is now 2023, and several new Target books are coming out later this summer. So before the new books came out, I figured it was high time to talk about the one book we have not covered yet, and that is James Moran's The Fires of Pompeii. This is an adaptation of a David Tennant, Tenth Doctor story with Donna Noble as the companion, featuring a couple of familiar future regulars in the guest cast. So before we talk about the book, let's talk about the TV episode, which I believe came out in 2008. And starting with Jim, what did you think of Fires of Pompeii the first time that you saw it? And then, of course, as the guest cast faces became more familiar, what do you think of it now? Um, I have a bit of a, um, a bias here. When, when people say, uh, what's your favorite new series episode, I often say Partners in Crime. But what I mean by that is Partners in Crime and everything that follows it in that series. Because I love Series 4 so much that when it ended, I think I've been grieving for it ever since. I've never quite loved Doctor Who as much as I loved it at this point. And I think this is a really, really strong episode. I, I think um, James does a really good job of a traditional story where they, they land in a situation, they work out what's going on, and they solve it. But the thing that he brings to Doctor Who that I've never seen before is he made me blub my eyes out. Um, with Donna and her reaction, and this is something that carries on in the book especially, um, the way Donna accepts the reality of what the Doctor's life is, but still says, can't you do anything else? Just one little thing, one tiny thing, breaks my heart. When I was watching this story as part of my pilgrimage last year, it just struck me that Catherine Tate is probably the best companion out of the first three, both in terms of performance and character development. And uh, Catherine Tate obviously came to rise as, as a comedian, and she has a particular style of speech. The dramatic work that she has given throughout this series, and not just in Fires of Pompeii, but almost every story in the back half of the season, 
it didn't really so much grab me the first time in 2008 because I still had hangover from uh, Rose and from Martha. But watching it again with a fresh eye, I was just astounded by the work that she did. And I'm not positive that she gets enough credit for how amazing she was as Donna. Maybe with her coming back for the coming mini-season, she'll get uh, more of a proper due. And I think the knock-on effect of that as well is having watched Donna's season and then going back and watching Old Who. I've always thought Old Who was quite emotionless and um, I never had any strong reactions to the stories. But now if I watch A Departure of a Companion, if I watch Dalek Invasion of Earth or The Chase or, oh my God, I'm almost in floods thinking about it. Suddenly, I mean, Rose kind of warmed me up, but, um, but Donna taught me how to grieve in a way I didn't realize was possible for a fictional character. And she taught me how to, to grieve for the old who in a way I never thought. Now if I watch Susan's departure, I'm in floods. Absolute floods. Well, let me ask you then, War Machines, part two, Dodo's departure, <laughs> does it make you cry? It makes me a bit annoyed because I'm a bit of a Dodo apologist. I think Dodo's great. She knows what the role of a companion is. It's, she's a kid who gets into trouble and makes mistakes. That's the job. And she does that really well. But especially partnered with Stephen, the fact that the two of them are really funny. And they're not just funny as in they're written to be comical. They're, they're characters who know how to have fun. Uh, I, I think that she gets a really hard rap, largely because of Jeremy Bentham not understanding uh, her accent and getting it wrong when he reviewed it for Doctor Who magazine, saying, oh, she starts off as a Cockney. And then we hear the audio of the massacre, and go, that's not Cockney, that's Manchester. Um, funnily enough, it looks like we're going to get our first Manchester companion <laughs> with, with Ruby uh, since Dodo. And when I mentioned that to Russell, he went, oh, yes, yeah, she's probably our grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that was uh, serious and not just a throwaway joke. It was definitely a joke. <laughs> See, all three of you guys are regulars on my side project, Doctor Who Literature, and uh, Jim and I have been plotting my Gunfighters episode because I am 100% on board with Jim. I think Dodo, I think Jackie Lane never gets enough proper due, and Gunfighters is probably her finest moment in the series. And I'm very much looking forward to getting to the Gunfighters novelization because I'm going to have a lot to say about Miss Dodo Chaplin. But bearing in mind, I recently said on your podcast that uh, Keys of Marinus is one of the most influential stories ever. Um, obviously, I'm picking a fight. <laughs> but I really like Dodo. Anyway, but I don't think there's anything contentious about Donna. Donna is, sorry, Sarah Jane, Donna's the best. Okay, that may be fighting words, but uh, <laughs> since I'm the moderator here and not a guest, I'm going to let that one stand. In my defense, However, I've been very ill for the last week and I might be delirious. So. <laughs> That's why you were the only one to understand my Latin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that and the fact that I did Latin at school. I mean, I failed it spectacularly, but I, I you know, did I you? Yeah, I went to a, I went to a really posh school in Liverpool, and um, we, we got taught Latin. And wow. we had a teacher who was so awful. Uh, I just loved baiting him, and I thought the ultimate bait was to actually to sit the exam and then just cover my paper in tipex and ask around for the, for an hour. <laughs> That's very Anglo-Saxon of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So moving on to Pete and Mark, and it just bothers me that I forgot to look up the Latin translations of <laughs> Pete and Mark, but I'm sure that's not too hard to come by. <laughs> Maybe Jim can fill us in later. So Pete and then Mark, what did you guys think of Marcus. Fires of Pompeii? Yeah. Right? yeah. 
Petrus? I don't know. Um, Petrus and Marcus? <laughs> well, I, I was also loving it. Maybe coming at it in a slightly different direction, but yeah, I, I loved that um, we finally got a companion who doesn't want, who would doesn't want to bunk the doctor and i was so bored of that uh that having uh having having the doctor and companion in love and then having the doctor and then having the unrequited arc uh to just go back to basically this is a i got huge nostalgia pangs for uh, for when i first started watching with tegan from um from donna because she's someone who tells the doctor he's not as clever as he thinks he is or that all that his cleverness isn't as uh a, 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 something that should be revered uh and uh and it just feels like there's a there's the right balance between these two and yeah the, and and they aren't just and they're, as you said, they're, they're really funny together. Oh, well, yes, I think you said that. You were talking about Dodo then, weren't you? I was nodding along going, oh, yeah, it's just like that. But I, the, the, there's, a, there's a parallel. Uh, these two actors have really good rapport and, and are naturally funny together. Uh, they, they can get f- funny lines, but they don't have to just do quipping to get laughs. There's something more than that. There's something organic happening that's really really funny between the two of them. I, at this point when it went out, because you asked us to cast our mind back, I, I, was st- I, I, didn't, I still had issues around the Doctor being treated as a god. And for the first half of this episode, I was like, great, she's knocked him off his perch. Uh, towards the end, uh, obviously, it, it rather hit me on the nose with that. Uh, we can talk, probably talk about that when we get to the end. But yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this episode. But, but the ethics, have, I, I thought long and hard about the, the ethics of the ending, which I know, I'm sure we'll get to as well. Uh, and whether, whether it's a, is, it, is it actually a cop-out. Um, yeah, that's my thoughts. Marcus? Yeah, I, I yeah, love this episode as well. I I can't believe it's fifteen years ago. That's uh it just 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 seems crazy, doesn't it? But yeah, it's one that, that always stuck in my mind. I think like you say, the, the, the Doctor Donna relationship um is, is, is one of my favourite pairings of the new series. And I think this is the episode that you know, any sort of lingering doubts that anybody had about Catherine Tate, you know, coming aboard um the the show being best known for sort of comedy sketches and things like that completely dispelled here it's, it's an absolutely fantastic performance and and i like the fact that it's a historical that that tackles the you know the sort of knotty problem of of when the doctor can interfere and when he can't head on um and and the book goes into into more detail like that i think in in a couple of really clever ways so yeah i uh, yeah. i really appreciate it from that point of view as well so let's segue then into talking about <clears throat> novel, the novelization. We've had several new series adventures adapted as target novelizations now. And it's interesting to see how some of the writers are playing with the format and giving us lots and lots of new material. I think the novelization of the Crimson Horror certainly retold the story in an entirely different way. So how did, and we'll start with Jim again, how did James Moran tackle this book without making it a mere script to screen transcript? What new things or reinventions did he bring to the table for this particular edition? Well, anyone who's read my blog knows I love a prologue. But the fact that this is set in Pompeii, there's no way I hear the word prologue without it being Frankie Howard. So, you know, it's like, oh, the prologue. <laughs> so uh, the fact that you've got this, this setup, and it's, it's a stunning, um, it's, it's a stunning instruction to the characters. 
Um, I, I think it's a, a really beautiful little thing. And then we get the epilogue, and the epilogue is, is kind of, it's already emotional, and, and now we get uh, something a little bit more. It's, uh, yeah, really good. But the thing I love is that um, he's got, I was, I, was, I was sorry, I was just about to say about the opening line. Um, it's not quite a Terrence Dix one, but it, I think it's really efficient. They had slept for thousands of years deep under the ground, unaware that they were even still alive. That's a great punchline. I, I love that. Um, the fact that we get Donna's um, ongoing realization that she's just leapt into this world. This is only her first real, this is her first real off-world adventure. And she's suddenly realizing she's with an alien. She's with a person who is completely alien. Um, and we see her struggle with that all the way through the book to the point where it becomes a bit like the last temptation of Christ. It's kind of, you know, as Pete was saying, that's the kind of um, the worshiping of, of the doctor. And you've got a character who is, who is wholly alien and wholly human. And seeing that balance and how, how he can be both things simultaneously, a bit like Christ in The Last Temptation of Christ, he's holy man and holy God, um, I think is a, is a fascinating realization for Donna, who was, by her own admission, only really had to worry about the new flavor of Pringles and that new shop down the high street. <laughs> <laughs> Petrus. Um. Yeah, I look, as you said, the, the, the intro, the intros are, are great. That that it reminds me a little bit of um, of what you what you would what you would get in a classic uh, Target novel, where they don't assume that you've read the thing immediately beforehand, and so you get that these characters their, their rapport is established. There's a good um, uh, you, you get Donna's train of thought as she's um, she's wondering uh, what weird what, what the doctor uses for hair gel and stuff like that. It's like he's an alien, does he use? He's using some kind of space gel, um, and it just establishes and imprints her character with you in a way that on screen she'd had what was it? Yeah, two two episodes, but all, but but I really, I mean, this is like what, eighteen months after she's been broadcast. About eighteen months after we first met Donna. And it's her first trip in the TARDIS, which must be some kind of record. Maybe, um, maybe the Brigadier's in the same boat, but for, for us to see her on screen and then be such a long time till she actually, well, uh, she, she, her first voluntary trip in the TARDIS, sorry, not forgetting what actually happened in uh, in, in uh, the uh, Runaway Bride. But uh, it's her first proper journey uh, adventure. And uh, that is, that's set up so well. With her, I, I listened to the audiobook version, uh, excellently narrated by Claire Corbett, uh, who's done oh, wow. quite a bit of big Finnish stuff. Uh, and she, it's a, it's a challenge. For any narrator to give those them both very distinctive voices, and she does because they've got fairly not a million miles apart, uh, distinct but similar you know, South of England accents, uh, uh, with <laughs> varying degrees of naturalness to them. But um, but but Claire Corbett does, does a does good really good voices for them both, so that so that they've got their own personas. And there's some like cheeky bits of dialogue flung in. At one point, Donna says she was on it like a car bonnet. Which is actually a, a rather sexual thing, although a lot of people forget that. Um, the full version is like an Essex girl on a car bonnet, uh, which is a, a way of describing somebody's enthusiasm for a particular activity, uh, whatever that activity may be in metaphorical terms. Um, uh, but, um, that, but that is the casual kind of language that someone of Donna's age from England would, would be using. Uh, and uh, so there's no, absolutely no genericness about, about this pairing. In the, in the in the book, you know, it, it's uh, yeah, it's fleshing them out nicely. I didn't know the etymology of uh, on it like a car bonnet. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really interesting fact. Yeah, I agree I, with that. I, I love the prologue. Uh, like you say, that short scene in the TARDIS before they arrive, which which we don't get on TV, 
Um, it reminded me a little bit of Rose in The End of the World when, when she has that moment of realisation that she's just taken off with somebody she barely knows who's an alien uh, and Donna's going through the same sort of thought process. But I love that it, we get her stream of thought and then it's sort of like a pullback and reveal that it's actually mid-conversation with the Doctor. Uh, it's like a, 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 she just stopped talking. It's like a scene from The Simpsons or something where Homer's just kind of gone off on a on a sort of flight of fancy <laughs> yeah. and then, uh, and then gets yeah. directed from it. Uh, so that 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 was brilliant, and um, yeah, the way that um, the way that it also because I think some of the some of the complaints about the TV episode were that the it lurches from quite sort of light comedy to really really deep tragedy. I think that's maybe evened out a little bit more in the book um, because it's, it's the sort of ramifications of it are maybe gone into more early on because uh, Donna's studied the eruption of Vesuvius at school. So she so she immediately starts thinking about the, the number of people that died and there's, and there's devastation and everything. So, uh, and the way that as the TV episode does really well is to really make you sympathize with the family. They, they all get um, points of view paragraphs and chapters through the book as well. So, so for each of the, the family, we really get to feel like we know them as well. On, on TV, this is one of those really high octane stories that feels like it's doing it's doing a ninety minute four parter in half the usual time. Whereas sometimes forty five minute single episode stories, you get a story that just that only does half of what a four parter would have done. It leaves bits out. But with this one, it feels like they're on the ground straight away. The first thing you have is them rushing out the TARDIS at the, at the very beginning of the episode, and then we meet the family and. Um, I read on, I think it's just on the, the Wikipedia page for, for, the, for the story that it said that this one had mixed reviews. And so I don't know if we are unrepresentatively positive about it or, or leaning a bit more positive. Because some, but there, there were comments that some reviewers felt that the family weren't very, were a bit too thinly sketched on TV. But when you've got 45 minutes and you're introducing all these characters and you've got the cults worshipping and you've got the, your two rival soothsayers and you've got your potential alien invasion, that's something that you, you know, in 45 minutes you've got to make choices, haven't you? Um, or 47. No, it's 45. And you have Peter Capaldi playing the, the guest male lead, so that's the characterization right there. <clears throat> when you have him on the screen, you don't have to spend a whole lot of time worrying about his motivation. He brings a certain shorthand to the table. But Pete, I had the same reaction as you. I was looking at my tweets on this story from last year and I saw the same thing on Wikipedia about mixed reviews. Yeah. And I wasn't sure what the negative reviewers might have been drinking, but this reminded me a lot of the Donald Cotton historicals from the 1960s where parts 1, 2 and 3 are farcical comedies. Yeah. And then part 4 suddenly becomes pitch black dark and tragic myth makers and gunfighters both fall into the same mold so maybe we're as classic series guys maybe we're a little more used to the the language where you can go from comedy to tragedy on a dime without it seeming artificial or forced maybe that's a uniquely doctor who trait perhaps yeah i think it's um the fact that they're telling these it is basically a, a, a traditional four-parter but in in half the time but the way that they save time, so as well as having the um, the psychic paper or the sonic screwdriver or whatever other device they've got to just speed things up, it's the casting. So it, this won't mean as much to the North American audience, but in, in the UK, when we're watching these episodes and then straight away you've got the, 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 um, the stall holder, 
Um, you might not recognise Phil Cornwell, but you might. And if you do, you might remember that he was a really good impressionist who had a TV show called Stella Street, where he did impressions of um, like Mick Jagger and other celebrities with John Sessions. And if you're a bit older, you might remember as the voice of um, Gilbert the Alien on Kids TV. And it's just a shorthand of, this is a funny character, Listen to him, he's funny, but he's also going to give you some exposition. Now move on. Right, next person. So you've got Peter Capaldi, and he's, you know, he's got a good career, and he's, he's trustworthy and he's reliable. So, okay, we've got to trust this character. You've got Tracy Childs, and you, you might remember that she was in Howard's Way. Oh, she, look at her, she's all grown up, and she's, she's a middle-aged woman now. And, um, and then uh, Phil Daniels. Uh, sorry, Phil Davis, rather. Phil Daniels is also in Quadrophenia, but Phil Davis, who's always had this kind of career. He's a lovely guy, but he always plays snide characters. You put him in the scene, suddenly you know where you are. So that kind of shorthand of really canny casting, really smart casting that just saves a lot of time to go, right, this is the character, move on. When you watch this episode, it's basically Stephen Moffat's entire future because there are three performers in this episode that all feature heavily in Moffat's future career. You've got Capaldi, you've got Phil Davis, who plays the bad guy in the very first episode of Sherlock, and then you have one of the uh, sibling sisters who we'll talk about in a little bit. But I want to address my next question primarily at the gym, or Jacobo, I should say, <laughs> because of the Latin. This story you just or the book, I should like say. A girl. <laughs> <laughs> so the chapter titles are all done in Roman numerals, and each of the chapter titles are in Latin. And I will confess, most of them I was able to get from cultural osmosis or from prior knowledge. Jim and I were talking on Twitter. Yeah. My experience taking one year of Latin, my senior year of high school, was even worse than Jim's year of a. Uh, the failing Latin. Oh, no, mine was five years. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, was, yeah. yeah. I was quite good at Latin until we got this awful teacher. Mr. Gresty, I hope you've had a horrible life. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the chapter titles I was able to get, I had to go to Wikipedia or uh, Google for a couple of them. Alia Iacta Est, I didn't know. Tenebrae, I didn't know. So, Jim, how do the latin chapter titles sort of comment on and enhance upon the action well they're amazing they're so good um i mean you mentioned donald cotton and obviously his um episode titles and chapter titles in his books are all really funny and they've always got this double meaning but these i mean james uh, moran has got this horror um pedigree so there are a few little things in there that they're really culturally aware. So the first thing is the, the dramatis personae that's the thing in the, in the front of a play that tells you who's in it uh, and that's the prologue. Then the most famous line of Latin, and because one thing I remember from my teacher is that we pronounce the V's as W's. So it's the uh, the old um, 1066 and all that joke, the schoolboy howler of Caesar arrived on the, the beaches of, of Britain and announced Veni, Vidi, Vici. But because of his accent, it sounded like he was calling them Weenie, Weedy, and Weeky, and therefore they revolted <laughs> and hated him. <laughs> so uh, in media res, in the center of things, it's a dramatic time. A dramatic term meaning when you start the story in the middle and then explain all around it. Uh, chapter three, Caecilius est in horto. It's beautiful. It's the first line of the, um, the Cambridge Latin course, which um, is where, I mean, this, this is the book that I studied, well, I was supposed to study. Uh, <laughs> and, and so did everyone else who did any Latin, the Cambridge Latin course. And the characters, Caecilius, Metella, 
and Quintus are the characters in the first book. Only one of them survives. But um, in case you're planning on reading it, I won't spoil which Quintus one it is. <laughs> um, and the first line, Cacilius est in Horto, Cacilius in Horto said it. Is Cacilius is in the garden, Cacilius is sitting in the garden. Um, I won't go through them all, but my favorite one, uh, and I'm only going to point out this one because I've been listening to a podcast called uh, Art of the, I think it's called Art of the Soundtrack. Anyway, it's an Australian podcast about film music. Art of the Score, Art of the Score it's called. And they've got this musicologist who was talking about Dies Irae. So chapter eight, Dies Irae, literally the day of wrath. That's a musical term. Uh, it denotes when things are going to get sinister. It's, it's kind of like, uh-oh, dad's home. You know, it's, it's when the god arrives or the threat appears. It's the bit in the movie. Uh, it's a particular type of music which involves a, uh, two pairs of notes uh, going down and up, or well, up and down. And it's the bit where you can literally sing along it's getting dark. It's getting dark. There's a really good example of a Deus Irae in Dragonfire. Um, every time we see Svartos, Dominic yeah. Glynn quotes it with the... Oh, right, yeah. That's oh. a Deus Irae. Yeah. I'll tell you one place you want here a Deus Irae. Fires of Pompeii. <laughs> Murray Gold's got far too many important things to do to play with that. <laughs> And then the, the tenebrae you mentioned. Uh, so tenebrae means darkness. But that's not what horror fans mean by that because they just think straight of Italy's greatest horror film director, Dario Argento. And uh, tenebrae is one of his most amazing movies. Um, it's one of the Giallo series, you know, the kind of um, Italian horror based on the style of pulp fiction. Um, giallo meaning yellow because all the books were published with yellow spines and they have recurring themes of people wearing gloves they use knives rather than guns and there's a lot of trauma to eyes in these movies um, and then of course the last one uh, so ch chapter 17 is status quo which means uh, a group of middle-aged men wearing denim performing their statement <laughs> 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 it <would> never ever stop <laughs> and mortality won't stop them <laughs> I like the, the fact that there's a chapter called Deus Ex Machina in which a character explains that this is a criticism often wrongly applied to stories, uh, which actually don't have that kind of ending. Like, okay, we get a little bit on the nose here, Mr. Author. <laughs> That's a very, very, very good thing to try and teach Doctor Who fans, I feel. It is. Uh, yeah, it's very... <laughs> you're going to criticise my episode, don't do it with bad Latin, because I will correct you when I get round to writing a book about it, because the ending doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, it is, uh, it is seeded earlier on. There's one chapter, I almost feel like, I would, maybe don't say which, I shouldn't say which one, I don't know, because it's so impactful when it happened, but there's one chapter that's only one sentence. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it, that's the point where everything gets dark, literally. Uh, and it's, um, that's very clever and an impactful thing. Yeah. It, it takes your breath a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Really I would point out that the novelization of the 1980s horror movie Gremlins also has a chapter that is a single sentence long, but that book is perhaps not in the same league <laughs> as, as this one. Oh, no, I've got to know what's the sentence in Gremlins. It is a oh, no, the gist of it. <laughs> it is a two-word sentence that relates to a very minor character played by Corey Feldman, who's a lot more important in the book than in the finished movie. Ah. Mm -hmm. And that's all that I'll say because I haven't read the novelization of Gremlins in about 35 years. That's piqued my curiosity because I love that movie and I've never read the novelization, so I might look that up. <laughs> but I want to talk as well about Donald Cotton because, as Jim points out, Donald Cotton in the novelization of 
the Myth Makers, which is coming up on Doctor Who literature within the next several months, also does a lot of Latin chapter titles and plays on words. So two of the chapter titles here are the straight versions of Donald Cotton humorous chapter titles of Myth Makers, where you have Temple Fugit instead of Tempest Fugit. And when the Doctor steps out of the TARDIS to interrupt the sword fight between Homer and Achilles, the chapter is called Zeus Ex Machina. <laughs> and of course, the Donald Cotton novelization of the Myth Makers also has a yellow spine and also has trauma to somebody's eyes. It does. Oh my god, are you saying that it's a jello? Perhaps not intentionally, but it is. Anyone wear gloves and run around with a knife? Probably. <laughs> Knives, <laughs> yes. Uh, Marlin spikes, yes. Gloves, I don't remember. Oh, it doesn't have a synth soundtrack now, can't be. <laughs> well, she'd be, um, um, <laughs> you could do a little remix of the uh, of various tunes. We are taking this to its illogical conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, I will address. Just as a side note, by the way, I got this through the post yesterday, yeah. which is uh, a novelization of the film Tough Guys, which, why would you get this? Why are you putting this out? It's written by a fellow called Ian Don, who we might know as Ian Martyr. Oh, yes. So I just got that through the post, and uh, I don't know whether it's any good. It's not got any Latin as far as I can see, so it's completely <laughs> irrelevant. And I, I'm holding up the novelization of Enemy of the World, written by Ian Martyr, who Jim knows better as Ian Don. This is the next book up on <laughs> Doctor Who literature. So two of the four of us have Ian Martyr books literally in our hands. <laughs> I don't have anything Ian Martyr related within reach, I'm afraid. But, but do you have a cat? Because two, but neither of them are. In, um, un, un, unlike our, um, unlike our host, neither neither of my cats are uh, are interested in podcasting. Shockingly, <laughs> as a point out, that Smudge's face is more visible than mine what? on my screen right now. Yes, yeah, Smudge really is here. It's not. This isn't an affectation. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we have a cat among us on 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 the call. I know I'm prone to, I'm prone to a lot of uh, <laughs> diversions, but yeah, there's literally a cat on the screen. <laughs> Ian Martyr also wrote the novelization to the uh, Ron Howard slash uh, Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah movie Splash about the mermaid in New York City. I have never read that novelization, but I'll have to chase that one down. It's really expensive on eBay. Never mind. <laughs> So, Pete, I'll address the next question to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Looking at this book, it's pretty faithful to the TV story. Unlike the novelization of Rose, it does not invent whole new subplots and characters. Unlike the novelization of Crimson Har, it doesn't have a very large prologue set in a different time with a different cast of characters. Mm -hmm. But if you compare the dialogue, there's a lot of expansions in this book compared to what we saw on screen, which makes sense because it's the length of a really long – 60 pages longer than your typical target novelization. So you can't just take a two-part story or the equivalent of a two-part story and make it into a 180-page book without some additions. What did uh, James Moran do to expand the story – expand the dialogue, give us a little more than we got on television 15 years ago. 
Yeah, well, well, this is something I was looking out for because I said that there was there were there were a few issues that I had on well, not qualms that I had on broadcast. I'll put it that way uh, about the morality of it and about the fact that it takes you to that thing of the doctor's ultimate burden. He he just can't save these people. And then all oh, right, I'll save a few um, because you cried. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm I'm simplifying, but uh, and it, and that never quite. I always felt like that that reached its crescendo with skipping some steps to get there um and there are bits and pieces peppered throughout the book that that really fill that in a little bit there's a lovely conversation about so where um he tells donna why when donna says why can't we save them not uh, not near the end uh sort of in the middle of it i think donna says you know why can't we save them and instead of him just saying it's my burden as a time lord i just can't he um he's, he gives her the talk about the fabric of time which we as fans have all already had and maybe that's why they didn't include it in tv because they were having to be ruthless but they put putting that there and then and um uh and and, and it's great when donna picks him up on it and, and says why why all these fabric metaphors i'll get in, i'll make them a new one i'll make them a new tapestry um and uh <laughs> I, I liked having that phrase that we're so used to hearing actually picked up as someone who's hearing it for the first time really would because we take the fabric of time as a completely uh, as a given uh, we're so used to having it. And there's, there's a mention of the fact that when the Doctor knocks over one of the marble grid things, that, that, that um, no, sorry, he stops it from being broken because uh, it, it would have fallen over and been broken when there's a tremor. And, it, and it's mentioned that, the, that um, his presence had stopped it being broken. So you could argue that at the end, that gives, it's, it's, not, it's not mentioned later, but that means he has already intervened because if he hadn't been there, that might have just fallen over and broken and then events would have transpired as they did anyway. But he doesn't know that or it's not, it's not flagged. But it, but it just puts a few more, yeah, a few more steps in, in the path to the big jump at the end uh, that, that I thought made it um, more solid, I suppose, yeah. But still no mention, they still, I don't think they didn't go into the issue of slaves, uh, which on TV, they didn't really either. And, and this, this is not a TV episode that's going to teach us what life in Pompeii was like. Is it? It, it's that thing of, if you went to the past, you'd be surprised how modern it felt, because to the people there, it is modern, and that's what they say. Um, but the the difference between this and a, whereas I always think in 60s, 70s, historic, uh, Doctor Who stories set in the past, the main shift is, aren't these people different to us? But then you see the little ways in which they actually are similar and the similarities are presented as, as a sort of interesting edge. Whereas in, in modern who, when you go to the past, it's sort of the other way around. And the, the main thing is it's all about how this, this is a dad with a daughter and a, and a son and they're all, the son's got a hangover and the daughter's wearing a skirt. Uh, there's two, the dad disapproves of and all that. These people are just like us is at the forefront in a way that, you know, it isn't in the crusade, um, for example. There was a line towards the end of the book where the father tells the daughter, you are not leaving the house dressed like that. And I literally, as the parent of a 12-year-old, said that this very morning. So <laughs> this is definitely uh, people are alike all over. There's uh, something about um, Donna, which we see later on in um, Unicorn the Wasp, but I think it's spelt out here. And I only realized it when I reread it today, is um, Donna's gone through history. And it's a bit like she's watching telly. So whereas Rose gets indignant about the slavery uh, with the Ood and she gets really upset about it straight away, um, Donna's thinking about I, Claudius. And so mm. rather than judging the, the, the situation, she's just remembering watching it with her dad. Um, 
let's also remember that Donna's a little bit more middle class than Rose. So, you know, they're a bit more aspirational. So she's watched Poirot. That's why she, when she's sitting with Agatha Christie, she's treating it like she's sitting there eating popcorn, watching an Agatha Christie on telly. And the same with this. She's not bothered by the, the, the Romans having slaves because she's seen it on telly. And that's her, just her natural reaction is, oh, God, it's just like it is on telly. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. Which then makes yeah. her think, is this a theme park? No. To her, it's still not quite real until the point when she realizes it is. And then the, the situation's far too pressing to worry about the mechanics and the ethics of slavery. It's, we've got to save everyone. Yeah, she's been desensitized by, yeah. by that, by, by seeing it a bit, yeah. So, Mark, let me read a brief passage out to you. So, Mark, you are the common thread to every Trap One episode about a novelization because you are either on the panel or you are the editor for just about every one of the new targets that has come out, going all the way back to Rose. And you have heard me lament that there is perhaps a little too much Douglas Adams-style humor in almost every book, including books that arguably don't need them, such as the Eric Sayward adaptation of Resurrection of the Daleks. Are there a couple of moments in this book where the humor perhaps intrudes a little too much on the narrative? So here's a line from the bottom of page 93. The doctor shrugged happily. And I'm not doing a David Tennant impression here. I don't know. Isn't that brilliant? I love not knowing. Keeps me on my toes. It must be awful being a prophet, waking up every morning. Is it raining? Yes, it is. I said so. Takes all the fun out of life. No surprises. But who designed this, Lucius, eh? Not you. You don't even know what it is. Who gave you these instructions? What do they want? Lucius's face grew more and more red as the doctor kept talking until he started to look like an angry tomato. That was probably the one line of the book that worked the least for me. Is that taking the humor a little too far, or do you think it's a good line? I don't, I don't think it's taking too far. I think that's that doesn't sound very Douglas Adamsy to me. It feels quite in keeping with the Tenth Doctor of, uh, you know, kind of being quite motor mouth like that, talking a lot, and and kind of uh, provoking reactions from from the villains. As well, um, and and I suppose you know, kind of, uh, yeah, sort of going off, uh, almost like stream of consciousness dialogue, where where he's uh, you know sort of thinking things through on the fly. Um, I think I think most of the humor does fit with the characterization of the Tenth Doctor and Donna. Well, I think it's the angry tomato part that uh, threw me the most <laughs> because number one, tomatoes aren't angry, and second of all, it's a pretty. Uh, <laughs> Interesting comparison. Killer tomatoes are. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> uh, if, if you're going to sing the song to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, then I'm on board. <laughs> uh, no. One of the most famous movie theme songs of all time. <laughs> it's next on my um, films to watch on a Friday night if I've got nothing better to watch list. <laughs> uh, we get, don't, we, we, don't we get a line about... Um, lunchtime doubly so as well we get an actual and for the second time an illusion that characters from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy are real in this universe and then just yeah. to double down on it so Sherlock Holmes <laughs> yes <laughs> and yeah and that's the ones where I'm like I'm going to I'm just going to decide that that's the doctor joking uh, <laughs> 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 Yeah, there was a long riff on uh, the relationship between Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle, if memory serves me right. Yeah. But still no Noddy. Yeah. <laughs> I 
Uh, the mention of the the real Sun Center really, uh, much as Jim's uh, mention of Gilbert the Alien earlier, would, took me back to my childhood. Where I haven't thought about Gilbert the Alien for a long time. Uh, used to be like Saturday morning TV, wasn't it? Was it Get Fresh? Yeah. Um, I used to absolutely love that and number 73. But yeah, the real Sun Center, when Donna says that she went on a trip there in the 80s, a school trip, and so did I. I went on a school trip in the, I think, <laughs> the late 80s there. Uh, but she said it was rubbish, whereas I thought it was absolutely amazing. But that's probably coming from a small town on the west coast of Cumbria to uh, <laughs> the real Sun Center. It had <laughs> monorail, it had wave machines. Yeah, Real Vegas. Did, yeah. <laughs> did did uh, Pete, Jim? Did you did you ever go there? I was I was distraught to learn that it closed down in 2013 when I looked it up. I know we went to Real, but I don't know whether we went to the Sun Centre. Uh, my, my cousin broke his arm in an ice rink in Real. <laughs> I told you I do tangents. <laughs> <laughs> some some context, I guess, for for uh, for readers overseas who don't know what the Real Sun Centre is. Anyway, it was it was. It's a collection of swimming pools, really, but it, it had a monorail that went around the ceiling and it had wave machines, and uh, I've got very fond memories of it. So. <laughs> Your moderator, having spent all but three weeks of his life in North America, I also i am going to need the uh, translation for that one, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess from the name, you wouldn't guess what it was either. <laughs> Sounds like a, a tanning parlor or something. Well, or a sequel to Galaxy 4. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> or the prequel to The Sunmakers. <laughs> Just yeah. for context, it's, uh, it's a holiday resort in Wales. So it's, it's another part of this Russell T. Davis Wales agenda. Yeah. Ramming it down our throats, <laughs> convincing us that if you speak Latin to a, a Roman, it's going to sound like Welsh. You know, it's, it's just got this bias that's just leaking through. <laughs> but we haven't talked about that. I, I found that really funny. That really works. That really made me made me giggle. Those um, that the language conceit and the fact that don't that whereas previous previous like when it's been so fleetingly alluded to previously, I mean Rose, Rose wasn't too happy about it, but but then just got on with it. Um, whereas and. and uh, Whereas Donna again, she interrogates it. She's like, "But why?" In um, in a way that a yeah, an inquisitive adult uh, would be less likely to just be impressed by a by a whiz bang explanation of how this MacGuffin works. She decides to test it and try and break it. And even just the that line that we get from uh, the, the 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 street trader, where he just says, "Oh, lovely jubbly." Nice little shorthand. Yeah. It's it's you know mm. in the book they they explain it a lot more that it's not just the TARDIS translates it and then it translates the words that you can see. It's the TARDIS gives you a flavour. So if this man is a working class man in Rome, he's going to sound like a working class man that you've seen on the telly, specifically from Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. He's, he's Del Boy from. So that's why he quotes. But it's also, I've, I've literally this second realized, this whole explanation ties in with why the whole bad wolf thing happens later on. She already understands that there's something in, in the TARDIS that can translate and explain something to her through uh-huh. visual and through sound. Uh-huh. And then suddenly she gets the whole overwhelming bad wolf thing and she knows, oh, the TARDIS is telling us something bad. And I've literally just realized, because this series is so beautifully sewn together, everything ties in. Yeah. Even that is feeding towards the big finale. Oh, it's clever. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, that that's more detail we've ever had about the TARDIS translation circuit, isn't it? That it gives it gives people a working class accent if they oh. if they're working class, and they say 
lovely jubbly is a Del Boy line, and it, it reminded me that there's also a Faulty Towers line when the Doctor says that Donna's from Barcelona. She says, uh, uh, "Oh, I didn't yeah, think she, of that." Excuse my friend, she's from Barcelona, which I mean, I'm assuming is a, is yeah. a Faulty Towers reference. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just thought it was some some sort of throwback to him talking about the planet Barcelona before. But no, yeah, it's it's, um, it's, it's, it's what, but it's not. No, I think you're where you're taking it makes makes more sense as a, as a joke because that he's doing the Basil Faulty and um, Manuel. Uh, thing, yeah. But... So, so again, the doctor's probably not even using that reference, but that's what Donna's hearing. She's hearing something she heard off the telly when she was a kid. So, is the doctor? Is every single time the doctor makes a reference to 20th century Earth culture, he's actually talking about Gallifreyan culture yeah. and the TARDIS is <laughs> translating it for his companion's convenience. Wow. Yeah, when he talks about the uh, in in the the Satan pit, he says something like, uh, "This is going to be the best the best Christmas that Walford's ever seen." It's uh, yeah, it's it's the TARDIS. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or when yeah. he says in, it says in his I, first episode, oh, I was quoting the Lion King. He's probably saying I was quoting Flavia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when Peter Capaldi starts complaining about the title of the movie Alien in Last Christmas, I'm sure that is also a re- re- reference to some other bit of Gallifreyan body horror. <laughs> Perhaps the deadly assassin. Everything we thought we knew is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) So I mentioned earlier that two members of the guest cast here become future regulars in Doctor Who. So I'll throw this out to you guys. How does the book address the fact that Caecilius is one day going to have the face of the 12th Doctor? And does the book address the fact that Mira – uh, the first sibling sister that we see eventually becomes Amelia Pond. I think it's very restrained because there's a few things that I wondered whether they would appear in this book. Uh, one of them being whether it'd be an oblique reference to Captain Jack, because the whole thing we're in Pompeii and it's volcano day is a line from the, uh, the ninth doctor story that introduces Captain Jack, isn't it? Uh, the empty child. Uh, where it's revealed that he pulls a scam where he's in Pompeii on the day of the eruption so that they can sort of scam aliens, basically, into into, into buying artifacts. So I wondered if there'd be some kind of reference to that, which there isn't. Um, and it, I, unless I missed it, I don't think there is a, a reference to that or any jokes about Amy Pond um, looking like the, uh, the, the the soothsayer. The... the the one about um, Peter Capaldi is, is really nicely done, I think, isn't it? It's just uh, it's a very subtle. The, the doctor says, "Oh well, I'll, um, I'll I'll look in on them. I'll look on his family and remember their faces." Uh, Caecilius has got has got a really good face. And then I only learnt uh, just kind of doing a little bit of reading around this when they talk about um, that the doctor did watch out for them, um, and each new set of descendants was fortunate ensuring their continued success and they were all drawn to the same sorts of careers doctor protector architect storyteller variations on the theme again and again this is a reference to the descendants of pompeii which i missed when it came out but is a is a sort of short video that came out during the lockdown who and it's got um tracy childs and the actor that plays evelina on a skype call during lockdown sort of reflecting on this on this idea that the that all the descendants have done the same sort of jobs and that somebody may be looking out for them so uh, so that was nice nicely tied wow. into that as well i didn't know about that 
But when you talk about the, the Descendants becoming architects, is this a prequel to Paradise Towers? Is Croagnon the great architect, <laughs> the evil 20th great-grandchild of Caecilius? No, because Paradise Towers is set in another world. <laughs> it's a colony, though, isn't it? Yeah, it could be an Earth colony in the distant future. Oh, maybe, maybe. It's that thing about all of the Descendants getting saved, you know, I mean, it's set up that the Doctor thinks, but, I'm going to stay in touch with them. And, you know, you think, when's he going to do this? Oh, it's during that segment in End of Time, isn't it? So he's visited yeah. all his companions <laughs> and goes, oh, I've got to pad this job a bit more. What am I going to do I, next? Oh, I know, I'll go and see Carcelius. I'll see all his family. <laughs> but then I've got this feeling that maybe there's a point where he forgets one Christmas and he, he misses one of the families. And maybe Missy steps in just for shits and giggles. And uh, <laughs> she manipulates one set of the ancestors to become a member of the British government. Just in time for Torchwood's Children of Earth. <laughs> because it's a sort of nasty thing she'd do, just for a giggle. <laughs> and then she go, well, just make sure you've got a bullet yeah. there, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can't make too, mate, too much of uh, this wonderful, this lovely man in Roman times being influ influenced as why the Doctor chose that face. Well, no, he never met Frobisher, did he? No. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 But also, Adelaide Brooke, can I just say, drew the shortest straw in the entirety of Doctor Who as being the one person the Doctor saves on a week where the moral is you can't change history because you have to go and shoot yourself. Uh, whereas this lot, they get really Christmas hampers for the rest of eternity and all, of, and all of their descendants out there saving the lives of people who are meant to have died. And it's like, but yeah, it's, uh, we can, we're like, yeah, that's the, way it, that's the way it rolls, isn't it? We can have a different moral on different weeks. If there's ever a novelization of the waters of Mars, we'll have to bring the same panel back and discuss the ramifications of the last chapter. <laughs> I really like the family getting a scene in the TARDIS. Oh, before. yes. Um, that, that's nice. And their reaction to that and, and seeing it from their point of view that they see the console as a table and and that, and that kind of thing uh, before uh, before he drops them off. I did, it made me think, reading the book, why does he take them to witness the destruction of... The home city. Yeah, let's watch all your friends die. <laughs> <laughs> like when he takes the a rose to see a dad being run over, isn't it? So, <laughs> it's like, a bit cruel. I'll save you, but I can only take you to the end of the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's stretching the fabric of time without ripping it, maybe. That's maybe, it's maybe the metaphor is actually that, that literal. I had raised a question on Twitter this past week because we know that Stephen Moffat is very self-referential and he spends a lot of time in seasons 8, 9, and 10 hearkening back to this story uh, for which he was not even the uh, writer or, or showrunner. I was wondering if the only reason that Rory comes back as a <clears throat> Roman centurion in the uh, Matt Smith era – is an oblique reference to Amy having been a Roman character in the fires of Pompeii. And that post of mine confused some people. And looking in this book, there's nothing really said about Mira looking like Amy. There's nothing to suggest there's any connection between the two other than the coincidental superficial resemblance. And in fact, Mira gets a lot of screen time in the first couple of chapters, but same as on television, disappears at the end and does not get a distinct death scene of her own. So maybe there's a very, again, the Mark quotes from it earlier, page 165 has the very good line about the doctor being impressed with Caecilius's face. 
and that sets up the whole future 12th Doctor story arc. But nothing is done, unless I missed it, with Mira eventually becoming Amy. Uh, maybe it would have just been a bit too jarring to have her running through the sound town during the explosion and noticing a mysterious crack in the wall or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would have brought me out, out of the moment rather than enhancing it. Yes. Would have been perhaps a bridge too far. The funny thing with the, with the sisterhood as well is that uh, I mentioned before the, 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 the sh- sort of shorthand of casting certain people in certain roles, but then you get Victoria Wicks as the high priestess, who is completely unrecognizable despite the fact that she played Sally Smedley and dropped the dead donkey. And if, if you'd just seen her in without the makeup, you'd go, oh, it's her off, off that thing, and you, you know, you'd spot her straight away. But this is one of those parts where they've just got, no, no, she's got a great voice, we'll just cast her for that. Uh, and it's not about making that, that sudden leap, um, which I thought was really weird. That's very interesting. Yeah. I think a nice bit of tidying up that I noticed um, from the TV episode was that the um, Caecilius, when he learns from the Doctor that Evelina's been breathing in rock and, and, and parts of Vesuvius when she's taking the vapours, that he says, oh, that's, we'll put a stop to that. You know, I, I don't want that in a way that he doesn't in the, in, in the TV episode. And then it's referenced later, I think, when the Doctor and Donna are inside Vesuvius. He says, well, you know, the, the family will have put a stop to that now because it did sort of make them look like slightly bad parents that the, they were allowing that to continue and if we're slowly to turn into a rock monster um, just for a, a job sort of thing. Like a paper round would have been better for her. <laughs> <laughs> the mention of the pyrovials coming from a planet that disappeared is part of the season-long story arc and that ends up coming into play in the Stolen Earth slash Journey's End. There is, of course, the reference to the missing planet in the book, but it doesn't expressly tie it into the missing story arc. The Doctor doesn't think, that's the second time in as many adventures a planet has gone missing. I'd better remember to keep an eye on that. So the reference doesn't really get built up. And do you think that anything more is done with the pyroviles in the book than we saw on TV? Are they given more backstory? Or are they given more of a presence? I suppose in, in the prologue, yeah, you get the, the whole idea of them being kind of sentient dust. Mm-hmm. So we've already had, uh, you know, rock creatures with um, the Castrians in Hand of Fear and the Ogre in Stones of Blood. But now we've got, it's kind of a consciousness. You know, they're, they're, they're not just rock creatures. They're in the dust. They're in the, the air. They're in the vapors. They're in the whole thing. And the fact that they can take over a, a whole population or certain members of a population by just getting them to breathe in the fumes. I think it's quite a nice idea. Yeah. Do we think... Um... So, I, I think it's. it's a, I can't. I can't decide whether it's clearer in the book or whether I was just thinking about it more when reading the book, about the the, the way that this sort of prefigures the uh, the moment, the time war, the big red button, destroy the world, save the world, moment that we're going to get in um, uh, the day of the Doctor, or whether this inspired. I can't. I can't remember how much we already knew at this point in in, in two thousand and whatever it was uh, about. We'd know, we'd know from early on. Eccleston said, "I killed them all," didn't he? And was it Dalek? Well, we found out that um, that that it was the Doctor who actually did a thing that that destroyed destroyed the entire his entire world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, there there and, and here he is faced with the exact same choice for Earth. But it isn't, I, you know, it doesn't just like that time when I had to destroy my own world. I don't think that gets mentioned, but obviously I was, I was, I was thinking about it while, while, while reading uh, in a way that I wasn't as much well as when I first watched it. 
That does cast a long shadow, that whole thing, doesn't it? So, mm. Or are they just revving up the plot point, the idea of the Doctor being a person who has to do that sort of stuff? I think it's just one of those character things now. So, yeah. uh, Like from Series 1, it's quite late when we find out that he actually was the one who pressed the button. Um, you know, and the, and the mechanics of it all, we, we don't find out for quite a lot. It's a lot later than you'd think. Yeah. Um, but the, the fact that they see that through, and that is part of his character. Of, you know, he's always looking for distractions. He's always looking to go elsewhere. He doesn't want to hang around because he doesn't want to look back. Mm. Until it's his last day when he goes and looks back at everyone, including multiple generations of a family he's never actually met apart from the first <laughs> ones. <laughs> <laughs> Taking about 30 years, presumably, to visit every companion, classic series, new series, big finish companions, Caecilius has many descendants. <laughs> yeah. That's a very and, long and last And in a bookstore. Yeah. Even Q's in a bookstore just to get an autograph <laughs> and go, hello, that book, that's about me. <laughs> the novelization of The End of Time is going to have to be about 3,500 pages to accommodate all these trips. <laughs> It'd be like happy endings, won't it? Yeah. Well, there's going to be a, ch- a chapter where he has to go visit the descendants of every single character from The Awakening because you have eight guest characters show up in the TARDIS and The Awakening. <laughs> Same with Black Orchid. Every person who ever set foot in the TARDIS ever is going to have to have a chapter in the end of time as the Doctor says goodbye or monitors their futures. Maybe it'll be a scene where he, he decides who counts as a companion, you know, like uh, <laughs> Katarina, I'm not sure. <laughs> Amelia and, uh... You go, Katarina, yes, although, and then Sarah Kingdom, she's a guest character, no. And then he gets to the time around and go, oh God, I didn't even pay attention. Who was in the room? There's loads of them, wasn't there? I pay you. Oh, I, I see Einstein. I'm doing once. Uh, <laughs> Herbert, Herbert, no, no, Herbert Wells, he can start off. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't really H.G. Wells, he was just a nutter called Herbert, (laughs) who thought he was H.G. Wells. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought he was H.G. Wells, it's just some fan. (laughs) Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, he was somebody, he was from from that era, but he was just cosplaying as H.G. Wells. (laughs) Speaking of which, have you seen the new photos of uh, Shooty Gatwa? Yes, yeah. um, leather coat. <laughs> he's yes. cosplaying as Lenny Henry's doctor. He really is. <laughs> That's respect. That's brilliant. <laughs> Finally, he's canonical. <laughs> Speaking of other doctors, one thing that didn't <laughs> pop up in this novel, which I did kind of wonder if they'd be cheeky and do it, uh, he might have just bumped into the seventh, a, a, a seventh doctor and a, another red-haired woman scurrying down the streets of Pompeii in a, having a very different type of adventure at the same time. Because we've, we, we've been here before, haven't we? Yes, we <laughs> if have. We listen to big, if we listen to early Big Finish. That was in the East End, wasn't it? It was the fires of Vulcan with uh, the seventh doctor and Mel, of course. Yeah, which is one of, I think, about the 12th um, big finish have to come out with Bonnie Langford's first one. And that's a very um, traditional sort of, uh, well, with a bit of a timey twist that you wouldn't have got in those days. But, but uh, uh, the, um, it's, a hist- it's a proper, it's a hist- there's no aliens there, is there? And it's, it's can, we have, can we get back to the TARDIS before the volcano erupts is, is, is the story in that one. 
uh, and it's the exact opposite of, of the version of Pompeii in terms of the TARDIS translation circuits, because they're telling us everyone talks like they're in a 1970s historical drama, and there's no nobody's using apostrophe contractions or any of that. It's like it will come to naught is the sort of sentence that people come out with, and it's and it's lovely. It's, it's big finish really going into that on the uh, on, on the um, uh, bringing that bam, putting the Seventh Doctor and Mel into, into that settings really nice uh but yeah it's a, it's 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 the opposite style of, of doing the past for doctor who in a way isn't it and it's bonnie's first big finish yeah, yeah. which weirdly leads to bonnie being in the power of the doctor alongside well not alongside <laughs> but you know as well as colin baker being in um the power of the doctor which is a strange way for chris chibnall to apologize for his appearance on open air really just to go oh, yeah you know they, <laughs> why didn't oh, if only they'd got a scene together somehow <laughs> so they could have discussed how much fun their adventures used to be <laughs> i will point out that for my sixth birthday one of my presents was getting in the newest issue of superman issue number 343 Cover date, January 1980. Hit the newsstands, October 1979. The the, the issue is called The Last Days of Metropolis, but it starts off in Pompeii. And one sorcerer manages to keep himself alive and is uncovered 1,900 years later when Pompeii is excavated. And he has a vision of the future and mistakes Superman for the destroyer of mankind. So it, it begins in Pompeii in the year 7980. That was how I learned about Pompeii for the very first time as a six-year-old reading a Superman comic. But there is, of course, no reference at all to that character in Fires of Pompeii. So clearly James Moran's first issue of Superman was not issue 343, <laughs> January 1980. <laughs> it's really nice as a generation of kids who will have learned about Pompeii from, from this story. Ooh. That's uh, you know that's that's kind of a, a really nice thing to think, isn't it? That uh, the first exposure to it is probably watching it in Doctor Who. Yes. Ooh. I'm just thinking, what would mine have been? It must have been Blue Peter. I, I couldn't say for certain, but that's where you tended to learn about things like that in in, in the 70s and 80s. I got um, a very nice tour of the Petrie Museum from um, Debbie Chalice, who is the wife of Simon Gerrier, the Doctor Who author. And when she worked there, and she showed us this one object and said, our best guess is that, this is from Pompeii, and our best guess is that it's a sex toy. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says, does anyone want to hold it? And we're like, no! <laughs> I cowards. <laughs> um, that was a conversation stopper. <laughs> I listened to the Rest is History podcast. I listened, I listened to their Pompeii episode today uh, to brush up a bit. Uh, and um, they're, they're saying on that that the one the thing, if you, if you to, to, in their opinion, and, and the experts they interview, you know, that the Pompeii is this kind of, or, or ancient Rome generally, superficially, this looks a lot like our world. But if you actually found yourself in it, the way people operated and the morality, the slaves, and the fact that um, sex and sexuality is just everywhere. There's nothing, you know, um, houses have lucky phalluses hanging up in them, or, you know, and, and it's not, it, it, it's not, uh, you know, the no case of not mentioning about the children or anything. It's just, it's just everywhere. And that sort of thing would actually be, be hard for us to, um, 
to get a hedge round, which is why when they start first started excavating Pompeii, the the, the people who were digging it up uh, and and reporting and, and discovering what was actually drawn on all the vases and on all the walls were rather horrified. And for a long time, we only got to see the highlights. Um, and uh, with uh, with fires of Pompeii being a, a, a pre watershed uh, episode, that that's the version of Rome that we get as well. Did, did any of you watch um the TV series, the series Rome, which I think they were using the sets of, and quite a few members of the cast. Um, I, I've been watching that on, um, I think it was on Sky or something, um, a few years before this. Yeah, the Chinichita Studio. Yes, which it is the same studio, isn't it? I yeah. think it is. Yeah. 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 Apart from um, the bits of the CGI in both shows. Yeah. Yeah, because and of course, yeah. Yeah, so, so this this is the first proper full on. They've done little bits and bobs, and this was the first full on overseas shoot for the well since um, two doctors. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. You're not counting the um, Grace 1999, are you? Well, it's funny. No, sort of not, because it, it, it's Canadian, so, so filming it in Canada wasn't overseas. That's the way I rationalise that. <laughs> it's, it's Canadian homegrown, as opposed to uh, as opposed to a trip to Canada to make it, if you're to me. But yeah, with, no, actually, it, should, it does count, really, yeah. <laughs> with all the bit parts played by Canadian actors who had showed up on X-Files in the past, like Gordon Tipple. Yeah. The Gordon Tipple master, the one Canadian master. <laughs> Yeah, we still haven't got an action figure of him. Come on, character, you cowards. It <laughs> could double for uh, Pet Shop Boys' um, Can You Forgive Her video where they wear hats, like, <laughs> like what he's wearing when he's executed. Was that a tribute? No, that came first. It must have, he must have, it must have inspired his costume. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, all of you guys have uh, been on Doctor Who Literature in the past. You're all going to be on several episodes in the future. Mark is the next one up. Mark is going to be in the second episode coming out after we record this trap one. And I'll see all of you really soon. But guys, where else can we find you? Or do you have any other projects that you want to plug, starting with Jim? Well, last time I was with you, I um, embarrassingly forgot the name of the book I'd been working on. But it's difficult. You'll see why. Uh, so I recently completed 26 illustrations for um, an unofficial Blake Seven anthology collection called Thieves, Killers, Mercenaries, Psychopaths, which is out now from Cult Edge. And next month, they're publishing the unofficial 2023 Blake Seven annual, for which I've illustrated two stories, five pictures each. And uh, there's one of them in particular, one of the um, sections of illustrations I'm really pleased with. So... Uh, if you're a fan of Blake 7, please get that because it also supports a very good charity. Cult Edge. Cult Edge. Cult Edge. Petrus? Um, I, yeah. I, well, I've, I'm still recovering from our epic uh, Blake 7 uh, adventures on maximum power, but we will be firing up to do uh, Series C soon. I don't call it Series 3. Uh, uh, and so I'll be on the rotating panel popping up on that. Um, and uh, I've, um, I'm, I'm doing some hamster extras with with Jeremy and uh, Joe of, of Hamster with a Blunt Penknife are branching out into the Buffyverse, and we're going to be doing some Buffy uh, episodes because that's a show that I, I love passionately. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be diving into that quite soon on there. Yeah, and uh, as you as you mentioned, you can occasionally hear me on Doctor Who Literature. Um, also, um, on uh, we'll be on Maximum Power Series C. Uh, well, hopefully, if uh, <laughs> uh, if I was okay on the last uh, on the last series, um, James, James is doing the rotor. We've all got to, we've all got to we've all got to try and bully him into getting us onto as many episodes as yeah. we can. <laughs> <laughs> my my, uh, my role on the 
on Maximum Power is is the person who's never seen Blake Seven before. So I just watch each episode just uh, just before we record and uh, kind of uh, give my reactions and, and theories about what's going to happen, knowing, knowing absolutely nothing basically. So uh, yeah, they're always always really good fun. The best, the best bit was when. Sorry to hug, but when you when we asked you what you thought Aurac was going to be, and and you deduced quite logically that it was probably a plague, because yeah, it's, it's be I mean, that, that was yeah. the most logical thing to have said. Uh, and it didn't. It hadn't occurred to any of us that that's what a fresh person might think. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was Terry Nation, and I thought <laughs> if it was a device or something, it would be called the Aurac. If it was a weapon or something, so I thought, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be a virus. So. <laughs> <laughs> and as you pointed out, Pete, you would never guess it was a supercomputer because they've already got one. So why would <laughs> yeah. you guess that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The shock is, it's another supercomputer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you can also occasionally hear me on Gallifrey's Most Wanted uh, podcast as well, which is, uh, which is good fun. And I will be going to Gallifrey 1 in Los Angeles. That will have already finished, I assume, by the time this episode is released, but I am leaving tomorrow. Several exciting guests, uh, one of whom is known to Jim from Jim's early fandom years. So um, it's his first convention in a long time, and he's going there with a friend uh, for moral support. So when he's on stage with Jodie Whittaker, please be nice to Chris Chibnall, because he's a very nice person, and uh, I'm very upset that I can't be there with you. That's brilliant. That they've but, uh, we, we were trying to get a reunion together <clears throat> during the last run of Jodie. And um, I calculated that the, the date we picked was almost to the week, um, so like specifically to the week, um, because it was on the same day that episode four of um, Time and the Rani had been broadcast, which is the last time we met up. And uh, so we're hopefully going to meet up in May because he's doing an event in Liverpool. So I'm going to be going across there to see him and we're having a reunion and we'll talk about happy times and uh, open air. And, uh, <laughs> and and the time when we all reacted to how much we hated Trial of a Time Lord so much that I started remaking the Vervoids because I'm about monsters and I started trying to make them as a monster and he just rewrote the script. And that's how he attacked <laughs> We're going to do it properly. Yeah. <laughs> and we were going to get a video camera and remake it in the hotel that we used to make our, uh, do our uh, events in. But like a lot of those fan ideas, it didn't actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Trap One Podcast. You can find all past episodes at trapone.podbean.com. You can follow us on Twitter at trapone underscore. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's Dr. Who Novels. And please also follow my side project, the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. That can be found on Anchor, which is a division of Spotify, but it's also on iTunes and all your other popular podcatchers of choice, as is Trap One. If you want to hear more, if you want to hear more of Marcus and Petrus and Iacobo, <laughs> all of them are frequent welcome guests on Doctor Who literature in the past, and will all be on several more times in the future. Thank you very much for listening and downloading. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you. Bye bye. Goodbye. Vale. <laughs> <laughs> I can Google. I can Google. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was perfect. <laughs>